0: You're listening to Flipping the Barrel Podcast, a women's perspective in oil and gas. We are your hosts, Macy and Jamie, and our
1: mission here is simple: to bring you the untold stories of this industry.
0: Hello, everybody! Welcome back to another podcast. Thank you again for tuning in. Today, I'm going to make a really short intro because I just want to get straight into his story today. Jimmy and I get the pleasure to interview Chris Wright, the CEO of Liberty Oilfield Services, who's in Denver currently. And he's just done so much for the industry. He's a big advocate. You've probably seen him all over LinkedIn. You've seen him on Fox News, which I thought was really cool. Just promoting the our energy sector and just showing up for, you know, for the industry as a whole, because a lot of people aren't talking about the things that we should be talking about. But before we get into all of that, because we will cover that, we want to get straight into your story because you're a serial entrepreneur and just like your story in general is really inspiring. So let's get into, you know, getting to know you
1: as Chris Wright.
2: Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Happy to be here. I really appreciate the podcast you gals do. It's fantastic.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Just like Maciel said, you know, we're super excited to have you on. And we didn't get to do a pre interview with you. So we really don't know anything about your background besides what we know today and who Chris is right now. So why don't we start out and figure out, you know, where you're from, what life was like growing up as Chris, and if you ever dreamed of being an entrepreneur?
2: Yes. Okay. Well, I was born in New Jersey. I, I grew up in Denver, first grade through high school, all in Denver. So I view myself as a Coloradan, but I gave a talk a few years ago when a guy said, you speak too fast to be from Colorado. Where are you really from, son? Okay, I was born in New Jersey. But when I was six, you know, so starting first grade, the family moved out to Colorado, you know, and, but I knew nothing about oil and gas. That certainly wasn't in the plans. I always say my short bio is science geek turned tech nerd turned energy entrepreneur. <laughs> so, and I was, uh, I love sports, you know, as an outdoor skier, climber, a tennis player, but I ended out, you know, I was good at math and science, so I figured I would do something along that line. And when I was in high school, the mania then, mania meaning everyone believed it because everyone else believed it, mm-hmm. was that, that we were running out of everything, you know, not just oil and gas, but farmland and minerals and materials and that, you know, sort of de- that we call now, now called depletionism was just run amuck. We had a physics professor from CU come speak at my high school. And told us, you know, that we don't know if it's going to be before the year 2000 or not. But oil and gas were running out, in industrial civilization, as we knew it, was going to decline. And it all depended on finding a replacement energy source. That, uh, as a young, naive kid, I thought, well, there must be some truth to that. And that's why I went to MIT. I went to MIT specifically to study plasma physics to work on fusion energy. You know what powers the sun and the stars and all that.
0: Wow. What did your parents do?
2: My dad was a stockbroker. My mom grew up on the coast in Massachusetts. She was a sailing racer and a traveler. She, as a young, you know, teenage gal in her generation, you know, traveled to Cuba, traveled to South America, you know, lived in Europe for a little bit, not wealthy at all, but she just wanted to see the world. My dad grew up in sort of the farm country of Illinois and came out to see you for a business degree. And then he liked, like everyone, he liked Colorado. So his first job was in New York and he was there for like 10 years, but he always wanted to get back to Colorado as soon as he could.
1: Did either of your parents major or have the sort of love that you did for science and
2: math or were you kind of like an oddball in that? I was an oddball in that, but I had another oddball, which was my brother. He and I liked math and physics. I was super interested in astronomy. And so, but no, it wasn't. No aunts or uncles. It, yeah, I, don't, I don't know where. We had some weird genetic mutation, but he and I quite liked that stuff.
0: So you went into MIT not thinking you were going to get into oil and gas. And then so you studied, sorry, what did you mention you studied?
2: So the plan was to study physics and physics. specifically plasma physics, which is, you know, sort of the essential process for, to create a fusion reaction. But that first semester I was there, I immediately got a job at the Plasma Fusion Center as like a low grade, you know, assistant that helps set up some stuff. I still very bullish on fusion. I love big science, but I realized quickly I didn't have the patience to do that, you know. So I, you know, I okay, I'm going to do something different. I got a summer job my first summer in college at Honeywell Test Instruments Division. So it's right when it's way before you guys' time. It's right when laser printers were coming out, and there was a competing technology called thermal printers. I didn't know I was unlucky at the time. I was on the thermal printer team and there was nine of us to try to quickly figure out how to design and make a manufacturable prototype of a thermal printer. And that summer job just changed my whole trajectory. I learned, to, I'd never worked indoors before. I'd never had a shirt with buttons on it before. So it was like my first intro to adult life. And I'm like, wow, everybody's nice. Adult life's going to be Okay. But then, in that bigger company atmosphere, what I got out of it was in this printer, nine people on the team, two people did 75% of what was in the final product. And so I was like, wow. You know, like when I I mowed lawns for a landscaping crew the summer before, and I, I always wanted to make sure I mowed more than anyone else at every building we went to. So this, you know, sort of ridiculously competitive kid. And then I saw, wow, you know, Doug and Mike, they're just. You know, they're several times more productive than the other team members. So it was from that summer I realized, now I know what I want to do. I'm to be an entrepreneur because if you only had all in people like Doug and Mike on your team, you could probably do something special. And I've never worked for a company with more than 10 employees that I didn't start since that summer. So I've been essentially a, a lifetime entrepreneur.
0: So what was your first business? What was your first real like LLC, let's say?
2: Well, the first LLC, I gave it a big sounding name, Cambridge International Corporation. We imported and it was sexy business too. We imported toilet seats from the United Kingdom into Ghana. And <laughs> how and so did you was- think of that? Yeah. Well, I didn't. <laughs> but I had a buddy of mine, a great guy in graduate school who was from Ghana and his brother-in-law in Ghana was in the construction business and there was a big shortage for credit problems in Ghana of construction materials. So we figured, hey, if we can figure out how to buy, you know, a couple shipping container loads of toilet seats and some other sort of related like finished housing products, we'll deliver them to Ghana and therefore we'll get paid. And you know, and it worked out okay. It wasn't the big success I dreamed of. But I figured out how to, you know, file an LLC and do that. And then I worked, you know, when I was in graduate school, I started a consulting job. I I went to graduate school briefly at UC Berkeley. And it's my one semester in electrical engineering graduate school at UC Berkeley is the only reason I'm in the oil and gas business. And the people at Berkeley love that story. And that was... Because they missed my paycheck. You know, I was a teaching assistant, you know, graduate school in engineering, sort of a low paid job. Mm -hmm. They didn't have my first paycheck said, hey, sorry, we'll give you two next month. (laughs) What about this month? And of course it wasn't, yeah, but it was a big bureaucracy and they only make a check run once a month. So I called up this gal who I'd met two years before. She's my wife now and mother of the children. But I called her up and said, I need a job. I knew she was an undergrad at Stanford. She had been working in the Bay Area in the summer and she'd stopped out a semester to make some money. And so she hooked me up with like a seven person company called Hunter Geophysics in Silicon Valley. So I started to work there and that's how and they, they had a technology they were using for oil and gas production, mostly in sort of the Bakersfield, San Joaquin Valley oil and gas production. So that's when I first heard what hydraulic fracturing was. Mm-hmm. I read these patents. I figured out how this technology worked. And, and I ended up leaving Berkeley after one semester, going back to graduate school at MIT in electrical engineering. But I kept working for this tiny company out in Silicon Valley. So that wasn't, wasn't thoughtful, wasn't planned out. That's how I got into the oil and gas business.
1: How did you feel about getting into oil and gas business when in school you were taught that all energy was going to run out. It sounded like you were saying that like, at the time they were basically needing a replacement for oil because they didn't think there was going to be anymore. So, and then you ended up finding yourself in oil and gas. So how was your first like, thoughts when you were like, okay, I'm, now I'm going to work
2: for an oil and gas company? So first thought was I was making $862 a month and now I'm making $1,862 <laughs> a month. So my first thought was a little jump for joy. And then my second thought was, hey, I've got to learn a little bit more about this. And it was at that time where I got to read and learn that you know, what was called oil reserves were just a tiny fraction of the oil that was actually underground. I thought reserves meant how much is down there, but it de- but doesn't mean anything of the sort. It means of the stuff that today we know how to economically produce at these prices with this technology can be extracted. And so look, as a tech guy, You know, we we don't have we still don't have any fusion energy, but with technology, we're gonna get better at harnessing that. So I think I realized early on, well, there's a whole lot more oil and gas underground than I certainly thought there was. Mm -hmm. And wow, I thought it was in underground lakes and you just sucked it out with a straw. (laughs) And I learned it was in rocks and and the you know, the complexities of it. I first thought this is cool stuff.
0: Mm. So then Pinnacles Technologies was the first, your first oil and gas business. That you started that, in 1992?
2: That's right. That's right. Yep. I, I worked with, I called that guy crazy guy number one. And then I was partners with a guy, crazy guy number two, who was a professor at MIT. And we developed a model of hydraulic fracture growth, predictive hydraulic fracture growth called FracPro. Hilariously, it's still like the world's most widely used frac model, although it's old now. It's old. And, and so that was sold so under I, Pinnacle? It wasn't originally, but yes, we brought that product ultimately into Pinnacle, but that was seven years after I started Pinnacle. So I started Pinnacle in 92 because I I, I left midway through a PhD from MIT to try to go save this company, Hunter Geophysics, that was going bankrupt. So I left, I moved out there and uh, I liked those seven people. And I worked for that little company for a while ultimately tried to buy out. And look, I I come from no money, but I met a guy out there who said, I'd invest in you if you start a company. And and crazy guy, number one, really was crazy. And so that was a problem. And so we tried, and this other guy was an investor in that company. We tried to buy him out. Ultimately, he agreed and then he didn't agree. So he didn't agree. So then I went and, and worked with another guy, crazy guy, number two. But that three years later, the first company went not just bankrupt Chapter 11, but bankrupt Chapter 7. Just the court seizes it and auctioned off the assets. So the idea of Pinnacle was to buy those assets. I had designed these tilt meters, these electronic instrumentation, and, and was involved in this software to process. So we went out to do that. We thought we could buy it for you know $50,000, and my investor was willing to put $100,000 in. But it turned out Halliburton showed up with deeper pockets. They bought the patents, the instruments, the software, everything, but I was still pretty committed that, no, I'm going to do this. So we launched Pinnacle with $100,000 and then just bootstrapped it, which has sort of always been my style. I had a lot of consulting work that I'd built up a year or two before in Japan for geothermal energy, hot, dry rock. So that was also a good source of funding for Pinnacle was basically a high-paid consulting work that maybe brought in another couple hundred thousand dollars in the first six or nine months that allowed us to redesign instruments, build new tilt meters, write new software, and basically go into this frack mapping business.
1: At this time, like there wasn't LinkedIn, the internet like it is today, network easily if you're not meeting these people out like at a conference or an event. So how are you able to actually like build your network and like know these because ty- You mentioned like crazy guy, number one and two, and then this, and then now you did some stuff in Japan. You just don't go and do that. Like you usually run into somebody, you know, somebody, where, where do you think your network, like, how are you able to build that? And you were pretty young at this time too.
2: Yeah. Well, I think the lack of those things kept me even more naive, even longer, but you're so right, right? You need a network, right? So the first company for hundred geophysics, they were, customers were struggling with confidence or understanding in how these technologies worked. And like I don't have many talents, but explaining something that's technical to someone and getting to understand how it works and maybe believe in it is, is one, of, one of my only talents. So I very early on in this company drove down and I met the people at mobile and I met the people at Chevron, this a company called Unical, Exxon. So they were bigger oil companies. And I didn't know much about oil and gas. I didn't pretend I did, but I could explain how these technologies work and what I could measure. Most importantly, I learned from them because I ask a lot of questions. So I started to learn a little bit about the oil and gas business, the 10 months that I worked for Hunter Geophysics. And so in that, and I connected with these people and these humans. And so when I went to start Pinnacle, well, I knew those people. And it wasn't a lot, but they were producers, you know, where the wells were shallow and they were close together. They were sort of the best application of this tilt meter fracture mapping technology. So when I started Pinnacle, of course, I immediately, you know, went to those people. And then, you know, in Bakersfield, it's a small town. I got introduced around even more challenging was just like hiring engineers in San Francisco. There was nobody studying oil and gas. So I didn't hire people that were petroleum engineers, but I needed to hire mechanical and electrical engineers and software people to develop these instruments, construct these instruments, write software. So there, you know, I just, you know, you just... You meet someone, and then you meet someone. You meet someone at, at beers that says, hey, join our softball team. And then on the softball team, you meet some people. And so it was all just sort of this organic networking that led to the start and the, and the growth of Pinnacle.
0: That's awesome. So how long did you run Pinnacle for before you sold it to Carbon Ceramics?
2: So I ran Pinnacle 10 years, a little less than when it was 10 years old. We sold it to Carbon Ceramics. I kept running it for four more years. And again, Pinnacle's culture didn't really change the way we rolled, the way we made decisions. The reason we did the deal with Ceramics is for our tilt meters. First, we had surface tilt meter fracture mapping, then downhole tilt meter on wireline, non-oil field people trying to figure out how to put tools on wireline. But again, a great team made that work. But then we had a new technology, micro seismic. The very start of commercializing micro seismic fracture mapping. And to get data rates high enough, you needed a fiber optic wire line. And then you needed these sort of specialized instrumentation that we didn't make at Pinnacle. So now instead of like, you know, for $100,000 building tools in the back of our office, you know, we had to spend a million dollars or a little more than a million dollars to buy tools and a fiber optic wire line. So with Pinnacle, we could have done that, but only slowly. Mm-hmm. And I thought this technology is going to go somewhere. So I did the deal with Carbo Ceramics to sell Pinnacle. I wanted an all stock deal. They wanted all cash. We ended up doing half stock, half cash, but that brought capital availability within Pinnacle so we could build these wireline units you know, and grow the micro seismic business the same rate we grew. Pinnacle, from our start, the 14 years I ran it, we grew 35% compound annual growth rate throughout, the, throughout those 14 years. So it's just organic growth, but it was growth at a pretty good clip.
0: And we know culture is really important to you. Like you mentioned, you've never really worked even for a big corporation. That's not your thing. And even with Pinnacle, it was all about culture, small, doing things quick, not the big bureaucracy kind of like company. How did it feel after two years after you left and you found out that they did sell, you know, the majority of what the pinnacle was at that time to Halliburton and for you to see kind of like your baby, you know, your company that you started now be in hands of, you know, you have no more control at this point. How did that feel? And then I'm, I'm assuming obviously the culture changed and things changed. Were you detached at that point or did that kind of bother you a little bit?
2: No, it was, it was tough. It was tough because yeah, as you said, like I worked one summer inside a big company. So super naive. But in my, my cell, you know, I hired people away from Chevron and Unical and Halliburton and Schlumberger. So people left big companies to come to this very different culture, this very different vibe in Pinnacle. I think Pinnacle was 10 years old before the first person voluntarily left the company. So wow. we just had no turnover. We just brought in humans, you know, we, and we had fun. And we were, I think, pretty good at what we did because we were narrowly focused and we had a great time. So, you know, it just sort of was its own thing. And so, yes, I was always protective of that culture. The deal with Carbo was very much based around the idea that we're not going to mess up Pinnacle. We're not going to change the way we roll. That's part of the magic. They got that. Oh, my God, we wouldn't want to mess it up. And, and I think we delivered on that. We kept growing the business. We kept innovating. And it just it didn't change culturally. So I had, yeah, i had stepped out. Still, of course, friends with everybody and staying in touch. So, yes, I was, I was very concerned about, you know, of course, fully in the rights of Carbus Remix, they owned the business to do what they did. So, but it, it it hurt, it scared me, I felt a little bit of a sense of betrayal to the people in the company. I, I went and met with Halliburton and talked to them. And and they said all the right things. And I think Halliburton actually did tread a little bit lightly for a while, you know, because I'm like, look, like you bought something that's about culture, people and technology and and Technology and and quality come from culture. And so I think ultimately it got swallowed into the blob for sure, but maybe that was slowed a little bit. But that was tough. Yeah. For an entrepreneur, that that's tough to see. And and I'll say that that was when I founded Liberty. You know, we have investors in Liberty when we started it, some individuals, but also a private equity firm that owned a little more than 50% of Liberty at the start. And one of my early messages to them was, "I'm never selling this company. We'll mm-hmm. get you out." Yeah. You know, I thought we would recap and just get in new permanent capital private investors. Or we're, turned out we IPO'd, But it was very important to me that I didn't. If you're going to bring people in for a different culture and a different place, you can't tell them two years or ten years later. You know, sorry, it's it's now here. So yes, that culture, that long term vision is is key to me. But if you you know, I surrendered my my baby. And I, you know, I guess I should have expected something like that would happen.
1: Yeah, I can only imagine the feeling of of seeing something that you created kind of get uh, maybe a little bit crushed because that's kind of what happens when you have the majors buy you know such a small company that had its own life basically its own life support. It already knew everybody in it already knew how the culture was, and then they get bought by somebody who obviously has way more employees than what Pinnacle had. But going back to Liberty, so what's interesting about this is you were in the oil field, you knew the capital that it it cost you. Know, support a business especially a frac company something that you know the multitude of pumps the people on location I mean you went from Pinnacle which I believe probably your field support was not nearly as large as what you have to have for a frac company and knowing that and going into it like what made you want to pick and probably because I'm assuming because of your background in frac and already understanding fracturing and all of that is why you naturally went that way but what was your reasoning for starting such a, a large service company on the frac side of the business? Yeah, so
2: look I would say it's twofold. One is, yeah, like I've been in frac for a long time. I love frac. I'm super proud and as, as you've seen, like I'm very passionate about the shale revolution. I think it's made the world a better place. It's made America a better place. And you know, what's the ultimate engine of the shale revolution? It's frac. So that that was an excitement there. And then ultimately the other the tipping factor was I had a lunch with some high people in a large frac company and in that dialogue, I heard, you know, there was a certain view of people that work in the office. You know, maybe their term was the professionals, and a very different view of the people that work in the field. You know, that are actually running the operations. You know, when business looks like it's rolling down, you know, you know lay a bunch of them off, and you can hire them later. And you know, the company then was struggling with incredibly high turnover. I'm like, how do you deal with that? Well, and the answer was. We tell HR to put more in the hopper, right? So on a frack location, the blender is where you mix sand yeah. and chemicals together in the hopper. So it was, you know, the, the, to me, by far and away, the most important people in liberty of the people on field location. Everybody in the Denver office where I work, we're the support team. We have one job, support the men and women in the field that are making it happen. That they're, they're, the, they're the people that matter. We're just the support team. But I heard a very different attitude from, you know, someone at a high up big frack company. And that triggered to me, hey, I want to compete against that. If, if they think the most important people in the company, you know, are kind of like disposable. Yeah. Sand going in a hopper. Boy, because Pinnacle, you know, at, at the end, you know, Pinnacle maybe grew to 200 people. And the majority of them worked in field operations. And so yeah, nowhere near the size of a frack, we didn't mm-hmm. nowhere near as much capital, but it was sort of a mix of the two. But no one at Pinnacle had any any view that the, anybody was more important than anyone or any any different. It's just everyone's on a team trying to make it happen. In fact, the people you think, you know, if you're gonna give them a hug or a kiss, it's the people in the field. They're out in the rain or storm and deal with all the things that get thrown at them. You know, that's those those are clearly the most important people. Mm-hmm. And so that lunch. I walked out of that lunch and I'm like, I'm starting a frack company. And uh, it was six or seven weeks later before I ordered a frack spread, not even knowing how to turn on a pump or something. So now I had a little bit of a time thing to find you know, a head of operations to really build a culture of field people that gelled well with the, the nerds like me that work in the office. But the, the love of the shale revolution and an insight into a competitor just made me compelled I want to be in the frack business.
0: And now a little word from our sponsor,
1: Technique FMC. Marcel, you know what I really appreciate about Technique FMC being one of our sponsors? Is their mission is directed towards a more inclusive and diverse workforce. One of the reasons why we started this podcast, as many of you know, was to move the industry forward and they backed that belief. Their focus is creating a culture of inclusion that will attract, develop, and retain a more diverse talented group and ensure their employees can always bring their authentic selves to work. This is important, you know, especially to our generation.
0: Totally agree with you, Jamie. But beyond the DNI, they're also big into technology. They believe in change and innovation in everything they do. Their offerings range from individual products and services to fully integrated solutions with a single interface to ensure a seamless execution. They have four main priorities, energy transition, emerging materials, digital, and industrialization. To find out more about their most popular technologies like Subc 2.0, oh, iProduction, Gemini ROV system, and iComplete, go to techniquefmc.com. I love that, especially because you're really like you're right in the sense that it doesn't take much to compete with a lot of the service companies, because most of the time the people in the field are like second, you know, they're not when, when in reality, it's like they're getting the job done and you all have a job because these people are in the field, you know, mm-hmm. and that's something that from many years since you guys started people who've always worked at Liberty, that's something that was always caught that caught my attention was, The culture, the fact that you guys had two weeks on two weeks off, which I thought was crazy. And it was like, why would they do that? That will cost them way more money. They're going to need way more people to cover all these shifts. But it always came back to, well, they get to spend more time at home, which makes them happier. And I'm just like, that makes sense. You know, when I was, I had, sometimes I'd work a month straight on location and things like that. I was like, wow, that really seems like a great company. And you're right, like in terms of oil and gas as a whole, we've always had that mentality of like, go, go, go. People are out on the rigs for 300 days at a time. And it's there's never been that mentality of caring for people. I think like as an industry, it's always been really rough. So that's really cool to see that you guys took a different approach from maybe another industry where it was more like we need to care about our people
2: well cuz i think to get good at something right you got to have a team that gels that works together that figures out how to innovate if you're working 300 days in the field as you say that happens in our industry people are tough and god bless them but you'll do that for a year or two you know you'll make a lot of money and then you know people go they leave for a year or they go join a different industry and maybe they bounce back you know so there's a lot of turnover and that's common but our view was we need a business that doesn't have a lot of turnover that has career people so you're working in the crew this is a lot we have we have over 95% of people at Liberty are in our 401k plan mm-hmm. you know they're saving for retirement this is a career and i think that's the way you can drive innovation you can drive improvement but you have to have a work environment that works you know for a long you get you, you got to get married you're going to have kids and family and you know if you're working crazy hours you can do that in the short term and you can do that when you're single but you know you yeah. can't make a career of doing that
1: that's a really valid point, and especially since I just had a child, and Ma is about to have one, we've definitely experienced that and understand that. Congratulations! We, <laughs> thank you. We really, we really respect that about what y'all do, and and it's come out on, in your recent report as well that you also help out with IVF and supporting families, which is huge. There's like I don't know any honestly any other service company that does that, but I also want to point out you know, as you were speaking during this podcast so far, you know, and we know this about you, that you're very passionate about not just the people, but the environment. And in that recent ESG report that you put out, what I really focused on like bettering human lives is kind of what the report name was, which I found really interesting because typically the introduction around these kind of reports doesn't really focus on the people. It's still focuses on the bottom line, what the companies are doing to, you know, bring value to the investors. And it goes straight into that. And, and maybe the ESG part is really just to kind of show like, Oh, look at what I'm doing investors. So y'all can invest in me. Whereas yours was completely flipped. And it was like, look at what the energy poverty is and how we as a company can help people. And I just really find that inspiring. What kind of like, where did that thought process come from to make such a report focus on that and not just your earnings?
2: Well, it was an ESG report, not a, and even in our annual report, we talk about stuff like you're saying, but this ESG report was, you know, to particularly address those issues, right? Our environmental impacts, the social within our company and social in the communities and how we govern and run the business. So seeing other companies' ESG reports, you know, honestly have been pretty disappointing to me. You know, look, there's a lot of people that really don't like our industry. It is, commonplace. It's in the schools, it's everywhere. And again, as as you pointed out, heck, that was there when I was in high school, but it's even worse today. You know, Our industry is viewed as they're terrible, they're hurting humans, they're destroying the planet, and let's see how we can get rid of them as fast as we can. And of course, we're going to be gone soon. That was the belief when I was in high school. And in fact, it turns out that was the belief about 100 years ago too. And I don't blame the average person. They don't know but that's, that's just simply not the case. You can't have a modern world without oil and gas. There was no modern world before oil and gas. And if the oil and gas were gone tomorrow, so would the modern world. You know, it's just so integral to everything we do. And to me, it's enormously beneficial to humans and to the environment. I travel to, I've been to 55 countries. I go to low income, poor rural areas and traditional societies. Those humans have the same hearts and dreams. They want to take care of their kids and have better lives just like we do, but they just live in different circumstances. Mm-hmm. And the environmental and human toll of that is massively higher. You know, just w- women spend over an hour a day searching for fuel wood, you know, sticks, grass, trees, dung, whatever they can find every day to burn on average over an hour a day. And an additional, and of course it's women In traditional societies, all the manual labor is done by women and, and women spend about an hour a day searching for water. You don't have flowing water or a pump you can go get water out of. You've got to walk to find a stream. You've got to try to be downstream of everybody else because of sanitation issues or upstream of everyone else. So these are just giant human challenges that if you have propane to your village and you've got a, a burning stove, you could save an hour a day, have clean indoor air, and you can power a pump to drink groundwater like we do. You know, it's just so life-changing to have clean available energy so that's certainly the big picture what motivates me every day and i would say across the whole liberty family you know we're you know this isn't a job that we're going to change every couple of years this is a we're, we're like a mission we're on a cause mm-hmm. so we love what we do we're focused on defending it against people who don't love what we do and so i took the esg report as just an opportunity to lay out the liberty perspective And not just our opinions. I tried to write it very, and I don't know what you thought of the writing style, but I tried to write it very even handed. You know, it was not Chris's opinion or Chris's preaching. And I do that a lot. It was just here's the, you know, here's where the world gets energy. Here's how that's evolved over time. Here, you know, a third of humanity doesn't have access to modern energy. And here's what it means for their lives. And what's the biggest impediment to that last third of humanity getting energy? Right now, it's sort of a, an irrational and way exaggerated fear of climate change. Mm -hmm. You know, so look, I've been speaking on climate change for 15 years. So I tried to write a short, just the highlights, overview of climate change. And maybe most importantly, after that, a little overview of climate economics. What are the people in the intergovernmental panel on climate change? What do they say the impacts of climate change might be? How much are they going to hurt human lives? How are they going to hurt human lives? And of course, it's very hard to predict the future, so I wouldn't put any precision on that. but what's shocking is people working in you know in the the groups specifically aligned to highlight the importance of climate change and the seriousness of this issue. their own work shows it's very slow moving, very modest impact likely over the next century or so, so if we've got 3 million people every year dying because they're burning wood and dung in their huts instead of mm-hmm. burning propane, that sounds like a little more pressing and a little larger issue than, you know, the world might be 1% per person less rich 50 years from now. Mm-hmm. Maybe it could be 3% in the worst case in 50 years, maybe maybe it's only 0.2%. You know, that's a pretty modest economic impact over a couple generations. So, and look, technology will change. And you know, climate change is a real issue, but it's very slow moving. And as energy technologies evolve and all that, I think it's quite likely it's it's never gonna be that big of a deal. But a third of humanity without modern energy, and now after a hundred years of electricity getting cheaper and more reliable, we're starting to see electricity prices going up. And reliability of the grid going down. Mm-hmm. Like these are that, and that's a problem I think is going to get dramatically worse in the next decade or two. Those are, those are big things. And so the idea of the report was to try to lay out all of these issues with some data and some number and some context behind them. Everyone's going to have their own views of how they would best trade these off. But I think by seeing the data, it's kind of hard to hold on to the climate change is everything. Mm -hmm. No matter Mm -hmm. how much energy prices go up, you know, no, those people, they got to keep burning wood forever because, you know, climate change is too great of a risk. I don't think the data ever supports that kind of a view.
0: Yeah, no, that's something that I really liked about the ESG report was just kind of turning it back where a lot of the haters most of the time just don't have the bigger picture of they've never been across the world. They've never been to those countries where, you know, it takes days or lots of work to try to get. They're just used to turning on or off their switch and just power coming on or heating their house without thinking. So I think as Americans, it's something we really forget about. And then it's easy for us to go against pipelines or against oil and gas companies because we think it's Mm-hmm. like we it's so easy you know but like i really like the fact of like no this is actually for the rest of the world who doesn't have any of this and you shouldn't be against it or like a lot of times too cuz we always get backlash just being in the industry in general of you know you're polluting the world you're such a bad person because you worked on a frac crew or whatever and it and i always go back to how many packages of amazon do you order a day how many flights do you take do you have a car do you bike to work every day like there's you just you name like 10 things and they're just yes. like, they'll shut up because mm-hmm. they don't even realize how much they're dependent on oil and gas, you know, which is very nope. similar to what happened with the North face and you kind of calling them out. It's they hate on us without even like taking a look at themselves,
2: you know? Exactly. I mean, there's no modern medicine without oil and gas, just from the petrochemicals, right? Syringes, plastics, face masks, even the carrier fluid in vaccines. Is from, is from the petrochemical industry. So yeah, but yes, but I'm with you. The average person, your neighbors and the people that are hating on you or hating on me or my family, they just don't know, you know, mm-hmm. that's all they've heard. So it's not, it's not their fault. So I think a little bit it's the fault of our industry. We got to speak Agreed. up a little bit more and we have to speak up in a way that people will listen to us. You know, our, our industry has generally been keep your head down, deal with the regulators and, you know, people don't like us. So just keep our head down. That doesn't work. Or it's, we're going to have a public relations campaign and let's vet it through legal and marketing. And okay, we're going to talk about these seven bullets and everyone sees that's not sincere, you yeah. know, come on. So I think what you do with this podcast, what you do with your neighbors, if we're just open and honest, A, people, see we're, we're humans just like them. We're not, we're not these evil, grubby, you know, Dr. Evil people. We're just hardworking human beings. And you know, are there are downsides to what we do. Environmental impact? Of course. Are there upsides? Of course. Mm-hmm. But I don't know any industry yeah. where the upsides are so monstrously larger than the downsides than ours. To me, mm-hmm. as far as you know, bettering people's lives and reducing the impact of an increasingly high quality of life, I honestly think our industry is the environmental heroes of the planet. But how would anyone mm-hmm. else know that? Yeah. How would they know that?
0: And, and like you you hit it right on the nail where I said, us as an industry, we are so bad at just sh- showcasing what we do. And like you said, we just, we're quiet. We're too scared to speak up. And that's kind of the next question that I had for you. You're very active on LinkedIn, not just yourself, but Liberty as a whole. You guys put out videos of what you do. You put out pictures of you being on location and trucks and And for, I would say a lot of companies, that's like, ooh, you know, we don't know how to handle social media. People are still scared as a company or even letting employees share stuff, right? You guys have been leaders in that. And do you sometimes get like backlash as being CEO and saying, you know, for some people, they would think like, oh, no, Chris shouldn't be saying that. Let's put someone else. The CEO shouldn't be the one going on Fox. And, you know, obviously you're staying true to yourself and you're like, you know, I'm going to say it and I stand up for it and we all love it, but I'm sure there's other more, you know, older generation or the, even the investors that may be scared about that.
2: Yeah, I do hear a lot of that. Obviously, I guess what I do is unconventional, but honestly, I've never felt any downside from it. Hmm. Yeah. You know, people think to me, it's what would you want? I just want someone to be honest and candid. And I think like climate change is an issue that our industry has shied away from engaging in, you know, that everybody says we're bad and we say, well, we're less bad. And so we just talk about greenhouse gas reductions, and we should. But the point is, if you only talk about that one metric, like we can make them zero, but energy be twice as expensive. And if your metric is greenhouse gas emissions, oh, perfect. They're zero. Well, no, th- th- there's a benefit of that. But if energy is twice as expensive, it's like we're gonna get a dollar of benefit for $20 of cost. Mm-hmm. Like that's you, you all, there's always trade-offs, pluses and minuses. And we've gotten into climate change and energy where we don't talk about trade-offs. We only talk about, you know, one side, only the downsides. And so, no, I think, no, look, I'm weird because I'm this, you know, sciencey nerdy guy who's been looking at climate change for 15 years. So I'm very comfortable and very happy to engage in a thoughtful dialogue there. But I think it's important that lots of people do that. Because the people who really don't like us, you know, I've, if you know very rarely will the you know climate alarmists ever debate but i've i've had a chance a few chances to debate them their knowledge of climate change in general is incredibly small and so people think oh we can't wade into that debate we'll just get beat up no look this is it's more a political social phenomenon than a technical and science phenomenon yeah. right politicians love climate change because it's a reason to justify doing anything doing what they wanted to do anyway
1: well, and what? there's no way to really know because it's so future. It's, it's years from now. So they can say whatever they want to today because nobody knows what's going to happen in 20 years. So they can get away to something that's concrete where it's like we know that this is going to happen
2: at X time. We, we don't know. And that's true. So look, I, get, any predictions about the future are hard and uncertain. But these sort of alarmist climate predictions, they've been made for 35 years. So tons of them, you know, by the year 2000, you know, the ice caps will be gone and 100 million people will starve. But well, that didn't happen. And I could list about 12 pronouncements from high profile people about what was going to happen in climate change by a certain date. And none of them have even come close to happening. So yeah, of course, they make them now. By It's always 50 years from now or 30 years from now when they're going to be gone or whatever. But you can extrapolate those trends. Right. The, you know, the chief scientist at NASA's Goddard Institute of Space Sciences in New York, when he launched the climate change movement really in the U.S. with a testimony in, in 1988. Right. So that's 32 years ago. He said his office on the upper west side of Manhattan would be underwater within 10 years. I mean, within 40 years. Yeah. Right. So that it takes 10 feet of sea level rise to get to the curb of his office, and we're 28 years into that 40-year period, and it's up about three inches. So we haven't got to his deadline yet, but if we got three inches in 28 years, do you think we're going to get nine feet and nine inches in the next 12? You know, probably not. So I think a lot of them, you can't say for sure because we don't know the future, but we have data, we have trends. We have what's going on. And I think most of the alarmist stuff, it's pretty easy to say, that's a pretty tough pot. You know, we could get hit by a comment tomorrow too, and that's absolutely possible. So I think bringing a little data, a little, if you're going to make a claim, let's see what the current trend is. I think that's what's important. And, you know, when I give these talks, you know, whether they're in colleges or schools or to investors or whatever, most people just don't know this stuff. You know, the, the biggest... Argument for climate alarmism now is storms. Well, after that hurricane, you know, or that flood in Germany, all these things, you can't deny that the climate is changing, getting worse and all that. But again, the data there is overwhelming. You know, there's no trend in hurricanes. There's no trend. There's actually a slight downward trend in droughts, just because a little warmer world's a little wetter world. You know, hurricanes, for we don't know, I mean, tornadoes, for what reason we don't know, they've actually declined enormously in the last few decades. So knock on wood, a little bit of luck there. But almost every other extreme weather phenomenon has no trend. But the media says it ceaselessly. The politicians say it. But yet the data, it's not controversial. Most of the data in our report comes from the National Climate Assessments or the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. This isn't controversial data. It's just never presented and discussed. So my view is it doesn't take a lot of effort to know more about climate change than 99% of the population. And then, if you're in our industry, you should invest that little bit of effort and not make crazy claims the other way. I mean, it's a real phenomenon. It's happening. Mm -hmm. But it's actually relatively modest. And most everything you hear is easily refuted, the alarmist. And I think it's not just important for our industry, 20% of children today self-report nightmares about climate change. Really? Think of what we're doing to the young generation. We are terrifying them. I get thank you letters, you know, when I go and speak to young schools. Kids think that they're, you know, they're not sure if they should get married or plan to have kids because, you know, the, the world's, world's going to become miserable. The world's going to end. That is really destructive, unhealthy thing. Anxiety among the young is growing massively. Climate mania is a meaningful part of that, and it's just dishonest. As you saw in the report, 100 years ago, 500,000 people a year were killed by extreme weather. 500,000 a year.
0: But those, those are never the- talked about, and they're left out, and you know those stats are never shown, only the yeah. bad things that we do.
2: And over the last decade, it's 25,000, a 95% decline with a population with three to four times more people. So actually, it's never been a safer time. Let There's never been a time of less risk from extreme weather events in human history than today. So, But kids think it's never been more dangerous.
0: So well, bringing sobriety problem. is important. Yeah. And that's a problem for us as an industry. And Jamie and I have talked about this in other podcasts, but Our talent pool is getting smaller and smaller. I mean, the majority of people in university right now don't want to go in oil and gas. They're not studying petroleum engineering, especially not after all these last two downturns that they've noticed, you know, in the last four years. So what do you think we need to do as an industry to try to regain that talent? Because, I mean, nobody's coming in this industry. Everybody wants to go to Apple, Google, Facebook, tech business you want to go to silicon valley no one's saying i want to be a frac field engineer right so how do you guys even as a company how do you handle trying to recruit that talent
2: yeah so two things F- fortunately i think there are there are still a lot of people you know people that live in rural areas and work in the outdoors you know there's still a lot of people that i think are interested to work in oil and gas but to your point there is a lot less and certainly people coming out of college there's a lot less but i think again it's the stories it's the stories when people, like when I speak in a college campus and people learn, what I talked about earlier, a third of people don't have access to modern energy. Women spend over two hours a day searching for fuel, wood and water and 3 million of them die from the indoor smoke. Believe me, that touches young people today. Mm. That's awful, that's wrong. How can I fix that? And, and the biggest answer to that is work in the oil and gas industry. And so I think when people hear the real story it swings the pendulum back. The other point you mentioned is the tough one, that this industry is very cyclical, very volatile. So it's not for everyone. Yeah. Times are really good. And when they're really good, you know they're soon going to be really bad. So it is cyclical. It is a tough industry in that respect. But I, I would say compensation generally is good that offsets some of that cyclicality. Mm-hmm. And it's a passion. You know, I think if you really understand our industry, there is no industry you can make a greater impact in bettering human lives and making the world a better place than this industry. And I think people need to hear that. They need to believe that. But the data is compelling. The story is compelling. And we just got to keep doing it.
0: So you've been obviously an entrepreneur from a very young age. You've had several businesses. You're married. You have kids. How do you handle, you know, everyone has a different kind of work-life balance, but how do you handle the talks, the traveling, the investor calls, the running a business and kind of being there while your kids were young or, you know, how was that transition and how did you make it work with, you know, family time?
2: It is a balance and it's a very important balance. Look, I know a lot of people that on hours that work way more than I do. I do work hard, I I am intense, but you know, shoot, I know people that, you know, they're, you know, 300 days a year, 250 days a year, they're an airplane and all that. I've never actually done that. You know, My wife, my kids, my mom are incredibly important to me. So I have worked hard. And, and if you said to my kids, should dad have worked a little less when they were young? That's, yes, that's probably true. But I did take, you know, after Pinnacle and before starting Liberty, I did take actually two years where I coached all my kids, little league teams. Oh. I took them to live in New Guinea, took them a semester out of school when they were in primary school. We lived in the jungle where the Kumbai, the tree people live. We traveled to Europe. So in any case, I That's balanced so cool. hard work times with taking my kids around. My kids, my wife, my mom have been to the Bakken. They've stayed at man camps. They've traveled from the work stuff as well. So to me, it's bring your kids into your life as well. I like You know, that. Like, everybody, like everybody, we have a take your kids to work day. We also have a bring your mom to work day. And we have a whole, bring your parents to work. We have a whole bunch of parents that come to Liberty for a day. They walk around, they see what the departments do. We have presentations. We do all this stuff. So to me, it's sort of a blending of work-life balance. At Liberty, we've never had a vacation policy. Like if you work on a field crew, you've got to work a certain schedule. You're the tip of the spear. If you work in the Denver office in Liberty, we don't tell you when to show up. We don't tell you when to go home. We don't tell you how many days to take vacation. We want you to do a great job and move the ball forward. Your kid's got a three o'clock soccer game. You should sure be at that game. We're very flexible. That's we don't want to tell really people awesome. their hours and their schedules. We want people to live their lives, engage their families. You know, we have all sorts of Liberty family events. So you ask a huge question. Like nothing is more important in your world, and in your life, in my life, by far, Than my engagements with my family. I'm raising the next generation. I'm giving incredible thanks. I mean, I'd be nothing without my mom. So, and your siblings and all those things. So, family is incredibly important. Don't put it off. You know, I'm gonna I'll do that in retirement. I'll do that later. I think it's hard, but I think you can strike that balance. Just work hard, play hard, and do stuff with your family. I don't believe in quality time, it's time. Spend time with your family. Some of it could be, bring them with you, bring them with you.
1: I love, I love that. that. Yeah.
0: I, I know. love that, especially with Jamie and I just, she has a six month old I'm due next week. And the family awesome. aspects has been scaring the crap out of me because all I've ever known is work, work, work. And then I'm scared of the transition of, where you have to choose being a mom or working. And will I be a less, of, less of a mom if I focus on my career? If I focus more on my family, will my career drop? So there's all those thoughts of being scared. But you just saying, you know, family is really everything. I agree. And it'll just all work out at the end of the day, you know?
2: No, nothing you will do in your lives will be remotely as important as raising those kids.
1: and I Nothing have will to- measure up. And I don't think people really realize that until they have children themselves, because I know that was my case. And now having the child, it's definitely a way different feeling and understanding of that balance. And you're right. Once you bring a child into this world, you realize how important life really is. And that's why, you know, having the culture that you have at Liberty is such a blessing. And, you know, it's really you know interesting to see that you built that even with not working for a large corporation, like you knew that's what you wanted and you knew what other corporations were lacking. So what, what do you have to say to those that maybe come and they see what, you, what you've developed and done and how they can change their culture? Like maybe they are now like, wait, I really like what he's doing. I want to mimic that. What advice would you give to develop a culture like that?
2: Oh, I don't know how good I am at advice. But I mean, look, every business is the central asset by far and away is the people in it and the culture that binds them together. You know, whether you're in the finance business or frack business or whatever, there's all these other things, but they only flow from the people and the culture. It's not how many trucks you have or whatever. You, you can't even build good trucks without great people that love their job, that knows how to design them and run them. So it's just centered around people. Everyone says that, but you know, I think you gotta. Just if you walk that walk, I think it's the road to success. It's Mm -hmm. the road to, because look, you guys are saying these great things about me. Of course, it isn't me that actually built Liberty and did all this. It isn't me at all, right? I just had this idea that if I could bring great people together and make them love their jobs, they or us collectively would build something great. If I was on my own, I'd do nothing. And so the great things that have happened of Liberty and the success in my career, Is just the luck or the or the good fortune to be surrounded by great people that are passionate and they love what they do. So when I look at job descriptions sometimes, you know, well, we want a geologist that's worked in the Powder River Basin that's got eight to 10 years experience and has got a master's degree. You know, there's these very narrow like check boxes or something. To me, that's like the maniacal focus on climate change. That's sort of missing the boat. We want an awesome geologist who knows something or can quickly learn something about the powder river basin. I would say hire the athlete. If that's a great passionate human that'll always work hard when no one's looking, you can always trust them and they're competent as a winner right there. They can learn about Mm -hmm. the powder river basin. I don't care if they graduated from high school, you know? So the over-focus on credentials and things or whatever I think makes, you know, just puts a focus on the wrong, the -hmm. wrong place. In my thing, I always say, we hire the athlete. We hire that great human, and uh, they can they'll figure out the other stuff.
0: That's awesome. I love that. Congratulations for building such an amazing company. Thank you so much for coming on and for speaking and like showing up for our industry. And, you know, we name you the energy spokesperson of the year. And hopefully you can keep doing that because we need more people like you to stand up for us. And it's just really great to see everything you've done. And thank you for coming on our little podcast and, you know, talking about your amazing career.
1: Yes. Thank you, Chris. I really appreciate
2: it. T.L. and Jamie, absolutely my honor. I love what your two are doing. This is what matters. You're forcing communication, dialogue, and all that. It's fantastic. And you do it in such a wonderful, thoughtful, charming way. So I'm honored to be here. Congratulations on the <laughs> impending birth of your children. Please Thank send you. me emails when they're born and a picture. <laughs> and let's stay in touch. But man, I'm thankful and blessed to be around you. And, and I really appreciate what you're doing.
0: Thank you so much, Thank much Chris. You.